0: You're listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, visit our website at scottshill.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad all of you can join us on this incredibly beautiful day as you've gotten out in the rain and enjoying that liquid sunshine. And I know that it it, it takes some work to get out and come and meet with God's people, but it is an encouraging thing for us to meet together, regardless of what the weather looks like. I wanna add one thing to what Garrett said. We are having our members meeting next Sunday night, but we're also doing the Lord's Supper together. So I wanna make sure you know that so we can come and celebrate together as a faith family. Uh, as we focus on the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I invite you to come and join us with that. Last week, we began a series on the book of Ecclesiastes and I need to begin by apologizing and making a correction of something I said last week. Something I said had created a lot of struggle with a lot of people. In fact, they even began texting one another and there was a lot of emailing back and forth and, and that kind of stuff of what I said. As I was preaching last week, week i made a mistake by identifying piglet and winnie the pooh as a female i am so sorry i misgendered piglet and for some people it has created some gender dysphoria this week and so i just want to make that correction so those first of all i want to i want to apologize to piglet himself I said he was a girl, and um, for those of you who went into poo fans, I apologize to you. Even Babylon B picked up on this this week. It says trigger warning: North Carolina pastor misgenders piglet. So, um, sorry. Just kidding. They really didn't do that. Dan Evans created that this morning and showed it to me, and I said okay. Now that we got that theological issue settled... We're going to continue in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, turn to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. We said that this is a book that was written by Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, though he doesn't name himself, that he is the son of King David. He is the king of Israel. So Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now remember, he is the most powerful man, the wealthiest man in the world, the wisest man in the world, serving in the most powerful nation in the world. And as he writes this book, in in verse 2, he tells us what his summary of all of life is, and he says it's meaningless. I mean, right off the bat, he begins by telling us everything is meaningless. Then he qualifies that in verse 3 by saying everything is meaningless under the sun, And the phrase under the sun, if you will remember, means that it's a life that's lived horizontally. It is a life that's lived by the five senses. It is a life that is lived in a way that you live as a practical atheist. You know what a practical atheist is? It's a person who says they believe in God, but they live as though God doesn't exist in their lives. And when we live life under the sun, Solomon tells us that there are four things that we can expect. And he lays these out in chapter one. He says, if you live life under the sun, nothing changes, nothing's new, nothing lasts, and nothing will satisfy. And then we come to the end of chapter one, and we made two very important conclusions. Number one, we need to be honest about ourselves. Are we living life under the sun or beyond the sun? And the second thing that we concluded on last week was life in Jesus changes everything. And the perspective that we are to have is to live life beyond the Son in the Son of God. Now we get to chapter two. And in chapter two, his experiment begins. And he begins to experiment with those six things we talked about last week that humanity is constantly seeking. We seek after wealth, we seek after religion, we seek after uh, um, pleasure, we seek after work, we seek after um, friendships, we seek after all these different things and our lives tend to be driven by these. So what he's going to do is he is going to test some of these things in chapter two. And in chapter two, he lays out three specific tests. Now I've got 26 verses to cover in this time. So we're gonna go very quickly in this. Okay. And I'm just going to take the Bible. I'm going to take the scriptures. And we're just going to unpack each of these as we work through chapter two. So chapter two, beginning in verse one, Solomon says, I said in my heart, let's stop right there. Solomon gives himself counsel. Now Solomon doesn't seek counsel from people who are older than him and wiser than him. He seeks his own counsel. He's actually going against his own advice in Proverbs where he says, in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. But he puts all of it aside and he's just listening to his own heart. I don't know about you, but I'm a terrible counselor to myself. I, I, I am not good at counseling myself. Just give you an illustration. I told my wife one day, I think I would look good in skinny jeans. And the junior Holy Spirit in my life, Chris, told me that ain't happening on my watch. Hence, I am not wearing skinny jeans today. And so sometimes we can be our worst counsel. And so here is Solomon giving himself counsel. Then he says what he's gonna test. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. So what's his first test? He begins with the test of pleasure. And you got to remember, Solomon is the richest man in the world. He's got all the resources at his fingertips. There's nothing that he withholds from himself. So when he says he's going to test pleasure, it's not like, oh, yeah, that was fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. He is going all out. He's using all of his resources, all of his his, um, welfare, everything that he has, and he is going to be consumed with this thing of pleasure. And what does he do? He tries pleasure by testing three different things. There are three ways he tries pleasure. First of all, he tries it with parties. He's going to get into the party scene. Look at verses two and three. He said, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I've searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What's he saying here? He's saying, I went out and I partied. I mean, I did the party scene. He began with laughter. He brought in the finest comedians of his day. I mean, he went out and found the guys that were the funniest in all of Jerusalem and all of that area. Maybe he brought in people like Dave Chappelle, maybe um, Ryan Regan, Brian Regan. Maybe he brought in you know, those for his redneck friends, the Duck Dynasty guys. But man, they were laughing it up. And they were having an incredible time. He brings in all these comedians, but then he goes and he brings in all this wine. And he's got barrels and barrels and barrels of wine and alcohol, and he is partying. But not only that, he doesn't have just finger foods. He doesn't have a few hors d'oeuvres. You might say in this passage, we don't see anything other than the wine and the laughter. But if you go to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22, here's what you'll discover. You will discover what, how epic his parties were and all the things that he brought in to have an epic party. I mean, he went all out. Now, we don't know how long these parties lasted. They were multiple days. They may have been multiple weeks. But in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22, he tells us what one day's party looked like. He says his provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. That's 220 liters a core. 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture fed cattle, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. That's just good old chicken, yard bird. I mean, he brought it out. I mean, this kind of food that he laid out was an epic, extravagant party. All scholars will say that this would feed up to, get this, 15 to 20,000 people. Every party, fifteen to 20,000 people. Everything that you can imagine, the most epic party that you can think of. Now, some of you are gonna be celebrating Super Bowl Sunday today, aren't you? Some of you are gonna have people at your house. Some of you are gonna be bragging about what you're preparing for your meal tonight. Well, I cooked 10 chickens. I got 10 hamburgers. Man, I brought some LaCroix and some Boone's Form strawberry wine. Solomon would laugh and mock your party because it is like preschool compared to what he did. And he went all out. How long did it last? Day after day after day. Scholars say maybe even weeks long of incredible, epic partying. Can you imagine wake up in the morning, preparing the meal that evening? The comedians are there. The people are there. Nothing but laughter. Nothing but drinking of wine. Nothing but eating the finest of food day after day after day after day. And then Solomon finally gets to the point. He says, man, I can't do this anymore. This is even becoming boring. I don't want to pass out in the back of a chair and wake up in Egypt with a new tattoo. I got to end this stuff. And so what does he do? He leaves the party scene because he needs to be more productive. So what does he do? Here's the second thing. He tests pleasure with projects. I know what I'll do. I'll do something meaningful. Instead of just partying all the time, how about if I build things? And then you find, beginning in verse four, he said, I made great works. That's a lot of things in a summary. I built houses. First of all, he built the temple of God, which took seven years. He built his own house that took 14 years. He had 700 wives. He built 700 houses for his wives. Can you imagine that meeting with the 700 wives? Okay, ladies, you've got one of three floor plans to pick from. And today we're picking, floor, we're picking colors and floor and cabinets. Can you imagine the mess in that nightmare, Joe Jacobus, what that might be like? Doing, all oh, 700. And he builds all of these houses. And then not only does he build the houses, he says he planted vineyards. He goes into landscaping. And he planted vineyards for himself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Listen, he didn't just plant little parks and vineyards. He planted a whole forest. How many trees are in a forest? Thousands. And this is in Israel, this is in the Holy Land. This is a place where it's dry and arid. So what did he do? He dug these cavernous pools and filled them with water and created irrigation and flooded the whole area. The days of Solomon were absolutely magnificent and beautiful with the buildings and the projects and everything that he had. In fact, you can go to Israel today and you will see the pools of Solomon still there. And by the way, if you're interested in going to Israel, Chris and I are taking a group next March in 2024. We'll have some pamphlets. That's a shameless plug right now, but let's move on. So anyway, he does all of this. Now, here's the thing. You and I might get excited about the few pansies that we plant and a couple of shrubs and Solomon shows up and he says, that's nice, I planted a forest and I can water them. And he does all of these incredible projects. Now what happens is he is so bored with the party life that he wants to do something meaningful. So he does this stuff and he stands back. And most men, we're like this. Let's be honest. When we do something, we love to stand back and look at our work and say, man, you're good. You're good. I raked my yard yesterday, gumballs everywhere for the fourth time this season. And after I raked them all up, it was so clean. I looked back and I thought, man, that looks good. I should take a picture because that won't last. And so I go inside and I tell Chris, I said, I raked up all the gumballs. She said, well, that's nice. So I said, I'm not going to say anything to her. She drives off to the store. She comes back and I said, well, how did the yard look? I didn't notice. That's not what I wanted. I wanted her to fall and grovel at my feet and say, you're the most incredible man I've ever married in my life because we want that kind of praise. And what does he do? He stands back and he looks at all of the building and he's empty. He's done everything he could possibly do in Jerusalem and yet he was empty. So he's in the party scene. He gives that up. He's in the project scene. No joy there. And the third one, with a pampered life. Now he stands back and he says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna enjoy everything. I'm going to do nothing. And we find that in verse seven, he says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And so he's talking about the fact that he had servants, which means this, he wasn't gonna do anything. He bought slaves and he probably bought the finest of men and women. And then they had children which belonged to him and their children's children had children. And so he had a house full of slaves. Why were they there? To serve him. He didn't do a thing. He didn't have to make breakfast. It was brought to them. He didn't have to make his coffee in the afternoon. It was brought to him. He had pedicures, manicures, facials, massages, everything you can imagine. He was weighted on hand and foot. Some of you have been on a cruise, would say it's like that. It's like being pampered. Well, not exactly. Here's the difference. He owned the ship, he owned all the slaves on the ship, and he was the only customer on the ship. Everything was at his disposal. So, what did he try to do? He was pampered by all of the servants, but that wasn't enough. He goes on, he says, I also had great possessions and herds and flocks more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. Man, I had it all. I had a cattle farm. I can get the finest of steak anytime that I want. I had a horse farm. I had the fastest, most powerful horses in the world. Can you imagine this guy pulling up next to Solomon in his limo chariot? And the guy's got one horsepower and Solomon's got eight horsepower. And he says, show him James what this thing can do. He had everything. Not only did he have the possessions, he had the political clout. Every nation in the world bowed to Solomon. Every nation in the world served him. They came and they brought him riches. They came and they gave him things. He never had to worry about one nation in the world coming to attack him, why? because everybody served him, but he was also pampered. Look at the rest of this. He said in, um, I gathered silver and gold, then he says at the end of verse eight, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Listen, whatever was playing in the Jerusalem party scene, Whatever band was there, people were enjoying it. He just bought the band. He bought the band. You know, they might be listening to music. He said, no, no, no. I own them. But not only that, he was most famous for the women that he had. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women. And we consider him wise? (laughs) A thousand women at his Every beckoning call. Can you imagine any kind of shape, any look, any hair, any eye color, whatever he wanted, he had to pamper him and to fill every sexual fantasy he ever had. I mean, you think of Hugh Hefner and his Playboy bunnies. He's got six in his mansion. Solomon would say, please, I married six in June. And he had everything at his disposal. Everything. Now I want you to think about this. Party after party after party after party. Building after building after building after building. Pampered life after pampered life after pampered life. And where does it lead him? Look at verse nine. He says in verse nine, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I guess so. It means I was popular. I was the most popular guy ever, I guess so, feeding 20,000 people every single day. Then he says this, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this on all my toil. Here's the thing. Solomon admits to something we don't like to hear. In all of his sinning, he enjoyed it. In all of his testing, he had great joy. He had great pleasure. I mean, the parties, yeah, I liked the parties. It was fun. The building, yes, it satisfied me. A pampered life, sure. Who wouldn't like that? Sin does bring pleasure. But here's the problem. There's a very important comma at the end of this verse. He says, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, comma, and this was my reward for all of my toil. What was it? Fleeting, momentary, empty pleasure. It was all gone. It was empty. There was nothing to what he discovered. You know where he found himself? Back where he started in all of the pleasure seeking. Now, here's the thing. He said, I never lost my wisdom or my focus. He didn't get so into the party scene and the other scenes that he forgot about what he was trying to accomplish. He was purposefully working through this to trying to find, can I really be fulfilled by all of this lavish living? And he says, no, here's a danger. Here's a danger for you and me. We look at Solomon and say, I'll never fall in that trap because I can never have the resources that he has. Here's the danger. We tend to seek happiness constantly through the things we already own and they can never bring joy. And so he tests this issue of pleasure and he says it's meaningless. So what's the next thing he tests? He goes and verse 11, he continues. He says, then I considered that all of my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of this stuff horizontally without God is empty. So test number one is pleasure. Here's the second test. Test number two, he tries wisdom. Now we're going to work through these pretty quickly. He says, wisdom, verse 12. He says, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes behind a king? Basically, he's talking to his sons here. He's saying, listen, I've already tried it all. I've done everything you can imagine to satisfy your heart with the things of the world and I can't do it and you're not gonna do any better than I've done. And then he starts talking about this wisdom thing. He says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. He's saying, yeah, it is gain. It is good for a person to develop knowledge and education and wisdom and discernment. It is good. And it is more gain in light than there is in darkness. Yes, the person who walks in wisdom has light and knowledge to live his or her life. Then verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. That means this person who has wisdom, who has acquired knowledge, who's applying it to their life, are individuals who can navigate through life well, and the fools who don't look at life and discern it will end up in a lot of trouble. But then he says this, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I've said in my heart that this also is vanity. For, the wise of, for, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Here's what he's saying. In all of my wisdom, in all of the education, listen, Solomon was so incredibly wise that he studied everything. He studied bugs, he studied plants, he studied the stars, he studied the oceans, he studied the grass. He was incredibly well versed in all of biology and life. But also the entire book of Proverbs is one wisdom piece after another. When he studied all of that, here's what his conclusion is. I give myself to wisdom, all the things under the sun. And you know what? I die next to the morons. They die too. And in the midst of all of my searching for both me and the most foolish person who's ever lived is the grave. And it's empty. And all of the things that I've been searching after has left me empty. Then he says this, verse 17. He says that he hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, when he says I hated life in the Hebrew, that's not really what it means. It means I was disgusted at life. I'd given myself to education. I'd given myself to all these things and the fool perishes along with me now sometimes we can feel that and here's his point there's nothing wrong with pursuing knowledge there's nothing wrong with pursuing education there's nothing wrong with academia there's nothing wrong with discernment and wisdom we need to live that way but when you're only pursuing those things as a means of satisfying your life you and the moron are no different Sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes I think about, about the, the man or the woman who goes to college. They, they go through all through high school. They work hard. They sacrifice. They want to get their GPA up. They get their GPA up to where they receive honors and scholarships and then they find that college that they want to go to and they enroll in this prestigious school and they're they're in the top of their class and they go through and they get their bachelor's degree. They continue and they get their master's degree. They get a PhD even and they go into the marketplace and they can't find a job for the very thing they went to school for. So they end up on a job next to a guy who has a high school diploma and who ends up being his boss and you discover that they are dumb and dumber. And you think, I'm disgusted with this. I've done all of this work in trying to get ahead by wisdom and knowledge and academia and it's left me empty. And so he feels like, just like the fool, the end is the same. So he tests pleasure, vanity. He tests wisdom, vanity. Thirdly, he tests work. He's going to test work. Look what he says in verses 16, 18 and following. He says, I hate it. Again, I'm disgusted. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. In other words, he's saying, listen, everything that I've worked for, I've got to turn this over to some moron behind me that's going to destroy it. And he had a right to be worried about it. His son Rehoboam became king after Solomon died. And when Rehoboam became the king, rather than listen to the wise, older counselors of his kingdom, he listened to the young, foolish men. And within one year, civil war broke out in Jerusalem. Within one year, the kings of the other nations came and stripped them of their vast wealth. Within one year, Israel had been divided into two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And within one year, 40 years of peace and prosperity and prominence was done away with because of one person. And so he is disgusted. And all of his work, everything that he was trying to build his legacy on is destroyed by a foolish son. And so even in testing in all of that, there is vanity. Verse 22, he asks some questions that are eternal. I'm getting somewhere. Verse 22, what has a man from all of his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. What does he mean? When you seek after pleasure, when you cannot get pleasure, your sorrow multiplies. When you seek after projects to give you some significance and you continue to go project after project after project and there's no satisfaction, your sorrow multiplies. When you go after wisdom, when you go after work, when you run after the things under the sun and you keep doing these things and hoping that eventually you get pleasure, the more you do it, the greater your sorrow and your sorrow multiplies because you can never be satisfied. And then there's emptiness, and then, and then he brings the indictment that these kinds of hearts struggle with. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is vanity. The person who's running after the things of the world to seek satisfaction, and those sorrows multiply. At the end of the day, they lay their head on a pillow and they say to themselves, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Everything I do leaves an aching in my soul and I'm empty. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been doing that. You've been seeking all the things that you can to satisfy your heart and your soul. And there's a nagging in you. When you lay your head on a pillow at night, you know something is missing and you can't quite figure it out. And so what do you do? You keep trying harder and you pursue more of the things of the world and it brings your sorrow deeper and deeper and deeper till you get to the place where you're disgusted with your own life and your future and you're thinking, what is there for me? What is the hope? And believers, I wanna tell you, when you go down the path of pursuing the things of the world, there will be a toothache in your soul at night that you know that you're not pursuing the things that honor God and something's wrong. So what do we do? I know you're thinking here and you're saying, thanks Phil, another wonderful gloomy message. Two in a row. But let me give you two takeaways that are incredibly powerful. When Solomon speaks to us in verse 24, Here's the first thing he says. He says, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is a very difficult passage to translate because the Hebrew words make it very difficult to put into English what it's saying. And while you read this, it sounds good. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and enjoy his toil. Just eat and drink and enjoy your toil. But that's not what it says literally in the Hebrew. Here's what it literally says in the Hebrews. There is nothing in a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Here's the first takeaway. Here's what Solomon's saying. There is nothing intrinsic in the soul of a person that will allow him lasting enjoyment from horizontal things. There's nothing intrinsic in the soul of a human being that will allow him or her lasting enjoyment from the things of this world. Because of the brokenness of our world, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, and because of our own sin nature, you and I can never fully be satisfied and happy with the things of the world. And you are living proof today of that. I'm living proof today of that. Every one of us is living proof. And here's what I I mean by that. Every one of us seeks happiness by buying more of the things we already own. Because we think, boy, I get that thing, I'm gonna be happy. Then all of a sudden, I'm not happy. So i want to buy another thing just like it. And so what we see is the curse of the brokenness of our emptiness of our souls that when you and I are running after the things of the world, we can never have lasting joy. Let me prove it to you. When people buy an automobile, most people don't buy a new car because theirs blew up on the highway. It just blew up. Most people don't. Most people don't buy a new car because they have to do some maintenance on it. Yeah, I got to get new tires on my car. That's going to cost $1,100. You know what? I traded in and buy new and they come with new tires? People don't do that. Why do people buy new cars? Because they want something new. They want something better. They want something bigger. They want something more flashly. And it makes me happy. And we do it again and again and again and again. The same thing. Let's say people don't buy blue jeans because their blue jeans just disintegrated. Somebody's not walking down the halls of college and say, oh, my jeans disintegrated today. I gotta get some new ones. People don't do that. You know what they'll do? They'll pay a hundred bucks for some new jeans that are partially disintegrated (laughs) because it makes them happy. And here's the problem. Within every human being, there is no intrinsic certainty that we will always enjoy the things we have because we're broken. We live in a broken world. And when you and I continue to try through pleasure, through work, through relationships, to be happy, we will never achieve that. And every time we struggle is just an indication of the brokenness of our heart that we can never satisfy. You're tracking? We can't satisfy. So that's the reality of every person here. But now Solomon gives us something that's incredible. This guy finally looks beyond the horizontal and for the first time, he is pointing beyond the sun for us. And here's what he says in the end of verse 24 and on. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Hear that? Here's the principle that I want us to leave away with today. And this is so encouraging for every one of us. Principle number two, the second takeaway, lasting enjoyment is God's personal gift to those who love Jesus. Do you hear that? Lasting enjoyment is God's personal gift to every person who loves Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a believer here today, you might say, this sounds kind of arrogant. This seems almost exclusive. It is. But here's what I want you to know. God loves all people. They're his creation. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God gives them food. He gives them relationships. He gives them family. He gives them the pleasures that we see through general grace that comes to all of us. God loves all people, but for those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who have surrendered their lives to him as Lord and Savior, there is a permanent joy that can never be taken away. And it only comes to people who are in Christ. Let me just say this. We see this. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy that comes from the Lord is my strength. In Christ Jesus, he is my strength. He is my joy. That joy is sustained through the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans, he says, the kingdom does not exist of eating and drinking, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then Paul writes in Galatians chapter five, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. And Jesus says to his disciples that the father's pleasure is to give you the kingdom. I don't know when we got this wrong, but somewhere along the way, Christians in the church have come to view any joy or enjoyment in life or pleasure must make God mad. And the world out there that's watching believers and they look at our faces and they look at the sourness of our lives and they look that we don't even enjoy the things that God has given us. Why do I want to be like them? I'm having a lot more fun where I am. And somewhere we lost sight of that. But let me tell you, every pleasure that is created, every pleasure is created by God and ordained by him. Now, pleasures have been perverted in this world. But every pleasure comes from the Father of lights who every good and perfect gift comes from him. And what we should do as believers is live in such joy and we enjoy the things that God has given to us that our delight in his pleasures delights his heart. That's how we should live. And we have this incredible joy that we can glean. I don't know where we thought that God is a killjoy and that if we have fun, he's gonna beat us with his club and say, you shouldn't do that, I'm sending you to hell. But he delights in us. I want you to think about the things that sometimes we are afraid to talk about have been the delight of God. There are a couple of topics we never discuss in church because we think they're dirty, but we forget God is the one who created them. And one of those is sex. There's some of you right now already mad at me for saying that, but it's sex. It was God's design, not a defect in the creation. It was his design that he would give sex to a man and a woman within the covenant relationship of marriage for their pleasure. Think about how he created them. He created a man and a woman, husband and wife. He created them naked in a garden. Not naked and afraid, but naked and unashamed. And they were running through the garden, frolicking, having a great time. I liked the way God created everything. And as this naked man and woman are running and they're the delight of the Father, God says, now go multiply and fill the earth. How do you think that happens? It's a good gift. And here's where I think we miss it as believers that all the pleasures that God gives to us to enjoy in Christ are real. They're deep, and they bless the heart of the Father. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He wrote these words. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion is in no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but what? Too weak. Too weak. Then he goes on. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When man sinned and the world is fractured, They took their eyes off of the creator for pleasure and turned their eyes to the created things of the world, and it's empty. So believers, here's the thing. Your joy comes from the things and the relationship that you have in Jesus Christ, and it's an eternal joy. It doesn't derive from the things of the world. It doesn't derive from what you can gain. It all comes from him. But the thing that God gives to you, you can enjoy. Father, I thank you for the pleasures that you have ordained and have given to me. May I walk in them. May I bask in them. May I see the pleasures of life, a sunset, a sunrise, a walk on the beach, a walk through the forest. Of playing with my children as I delight in them. Of loving my wife, loving my husband, being intimate and giving you thanks for the good things. And as I live and bask in God's personal gift to me, it is a lasting joy and I don't run after the things of the world. I run to him. And I celebrate every good and perfect gift and my satisfaction and joy is unending. If you're a child of God today, you and I should be living in the pleasures that God has given to us as believers that delights him and is attractive to the world that wants something wholesome and right. And if you're not a believer today, the Lord Jesus is saying to you, you will never find that kind of joy here. It's only in me. You see, inside of you, you do not have the capability of being joyful. But in me, Proverbs, I mean, Psalm 1611, in his presence is joy and in his right hand or blessings forever. So believers, today, find your joy in him. Celebrate the blessings and the pleasures that he's given you of life. Bask in those. Delight the heart of your father as you are being delighted by what he has given you. And if you're not a believer today, my friend, listen. Jesus is saying to you, I have done everything necessary for you to find life and find life to its full. All that you would just surrender to him today. And believers, why not live in such a way that the world could see what real joy is? A gift from God for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us all of this picture that Solomon has laid out in front of us. And Father, at the end of his life, he comes to grip with the vanity of living under the sun. And your Holy Spirit has shown us today that we already know these things. But may we walk in them in fullness of joy, in fullness of the Holy Spirit, and the fullness of your grace. And Father, we see this broken world as it is, but we also see that all of creation groans for the redemption of humanity, that it would be restored to your original plans, and that we would walk in the abundance of eternal enjoyment. Father, for those who are without Christ, I pray today that there would be a consideration of Jesus as Lord. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would draw them and do his work in their hearts and their minds. And they would come to know that their only means of hope is found in Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.